นมูตสาบวทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทธัสสานมูตสาบกวทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทธัสสานมูตสาบกวทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทธัสสานพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสัมมิเธอว่าที่วันนี้ฉันจะพยายามจะเล่าคำถามให้พวกเราสำหรับเรื่องเกี่ยวกับการใช้วิธีการใช้วิธีการใช้วิธีการใช้วิธีการใช้วิธีการใช้วิธีการใช้วิธีการใช้วิธีการใช้วิธีการใช้วิธีการใช้วิธีการใช้วิธีการใช้วิธีการใช้วิธีการใช้วิธีการใช้วิธีการใช้วิธีการใน this work that we are engaged in we all need all the help we can get and fortunately not only did our Buddha arrive at complete realization liberation enlightenment but his creative genius meant that he was able to perceive and then teach and share for the benefit of others various skillful means that we can use This task that we have, and, well, the tasks that we have, we can, we can perhaps develop some skillful means that work in one area, but then they don't work in another. And well, one skillful means might work for one type of person, but it doesn't work for another. And the Buddha spent uh, all his teaching life, basically coming up with and sharing, and then. Uh, thankfully, also these were recorded for our benefit, and so we still have these teachings from the Buddha available for us today, and they can uh, give us direct benefit. We can learn to train in these skillful means for ourselves, or we can also get to know how to approach finding our own skillful means, which is also important. We all also have our own creative ability. And since we have our own unique conundrums to deal with, uh, cultivating these skillful means is an important aspect of our practice. And in the Mahayana Buddhist tradition, it's sometimes taught that the Buddha taught about the eighty-four thousand Dhamma doors. And, Suggestion of eighty-four thousand is symbolic of all the different types of characters there are. In other words, we don't necessarily need to copy what somebody else is doing. We can learn from what other people are doing. We can learn from what the great teachers have shared with us. But we can also—it's important that we do also. Really take responsibility for our own condition. So, how do we untangle this particular knot? How do I receive this experience? Each of us, throughout every day, throughout our lives, keep coming across experiences, sometimes intense, sometimes mellow, where we feel 
obstructed. Mm. Now, we could fight against it, we could judge it, we could uh, feel hard done by, uh, or we could open up and receive it. And this is what the invitation is in our practice, is how to have that quality of, of receptivity, that well-cultivated mindfulness, so that wise reflection can then untangle the knot. Receptivity is the first stage. And probably all of us are familiar with resistance. We know how to resist experience. A lot of experiences can be very unpleasant. And recently I had uh, cause to go down to London, spent a couple of nights in London, and, and I don't know what it was, whether it was the <laughs> 32 degrees, which I'm not used to, uh, and uh, 32 degrees and having to travel on my own on the underground. I'm used to living in this lovely monastery here where we nearly always have a, a gentle or sometimes not so gentle breeze blowing through and I'm surrounded by nice helpful monks and novices and anagarikas and there I was on my own on the underground in London and is it ever dirty? I mean, <laughs> I've never... I mean, I felt so discomposed this time and I'm not familiar with it. It smells bad, it looks bad, it sounds bad. It really impacts in a very unpleasant manner. Well, that's just an everyday experience for a lot of people. For I don't know how many million of people live in London and all the other cities around the world. It's very normal. Such physical experiences... If we don't have well-developed, skillful means, that is, tools, techniques, to help bring us back to being present and receiving it, what do we do? We resist it and we build up obstructions. And We do this so habitually and we do this so collectively that we think it's normal to resist reality and to feel chronically obstructed is the normal condition for most people, actually. Well, thankfully, we have the inspiration, the example of the Buddha and the great disciples to show us what it's like to be free from all obstructions, all hindrances. Yeah, and, but to do that, we do need to pay attention to these skillful means. We need to study our experience. You know, we can study the books. That's one level of, as I was saying last night when we were chanting the Dhammachaka Sutta, you know, studying this and reciting it is you know, one of the first stages of training known as pariyati, where we study about the teachings, but then we take it to the next level and we study our senses. Mm. We study the experience, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the tastes, the touches, the mental impressions. You know, you know, we bring our pristine, or we try to cultivate a pristine level of awareness, of receptivity. You see, when does liking and disliking arise? How does that affect us? What's the experience of clinging? What's the experience of letting go? Uh, this is our study. And we need all the skillful means at our disposal. Uh, we need to be very agile to meet all these experiences. And I suspect very strongly that probably is the case for all of us now living in this particular time on planet Earth that the intensity of experience 
that we allow ourselves to be subjected to is probably unparalleled. I was just having a conversation recently about how much data we have to process in our brains. Because of technology and education, we are now challenged with this phenomenal amount of data that we have to process. I, I imagine there are some people somewhere who've they've calibrated all this and they have an estimation, and I'm sure that the graph would show up that these days, with our mobile phones and our internet and our conversations and our complexity of life, we are really challenged with dealing with a lot of stress, perhaps more so than human beings have ever really been challenged with, certainly of this kind. At other times there have been other stresses, but what we've got to deal with is unique to us and we need to develop the skillful means to receive it, not just to judge it, not just to blame technology. I was coming back on the train from London the other day and there's a, a couple sitting opposite me and, and the man was telling me how it's the government. And he was particularly talking about the American government. It's the American government that's, that's to blame. They're the ones that have done it. And fortunately we managed to avoid having a disagreement. And, and if I'm not being too proud, I think I can put some of that down to my having put some effort into developing skillful means and dealing with fundamentalists of certain persuasion and uh, not, uh, not buying into the invitation to get contentious. Um, it's easy to blame, but that's what's classically referred to as heedless. Uh, that's, that doesn't untangle the knot. That makes the heart contract more. So when we have this intensity of experience, it's very easy to get disoriented. You know, just in London with the person I was visiting there, you know, he was telling me how his way of coping with it, although these days he's retired, but when he was working in the city, so it was just to desensitize. You just turn off. You just The noise is so intense. You know, between the carriages of the on the tube and the underground, it's the noise that's generated is extraordinary. And again, as I was saying, the smell and the sight is just so, uh, it's too much. And so what do we do? We can get disoriented and so we numb ourselves out. Or we get disoriented and so we turn to other unskillful means, you know, like excessive eating or excessive talking. You know, we use our relationships with other people these days it's excessive texting and and talking on mobile phones maybe two phones going at the same time and and you know, these sensory experiences that we engage in as a way of what as a way of trying to find our orientation again trying to find some stability but even if we don't live in a city like that there's always experiences that throw us off kilter. And to be prepared for that with the skillful means so that we can come back again, come back to some sort of a perspective, some sort of a balance, some sort of a centre. If we lose our centre, if we lose our balance, if we lose our perspective, 
then the tendency is to keep turning to these unskillful means, including various substances. The consumption of of medication these days has skyrocketed, and not to mention the illegal substances that are being consumed. What is this all about? What's happening? It's not because people are bad. It's just that people are confused. And we confuse me just struggling to find something that helps us make sense. Well, again, we come back to what the Buddha taught was developing skillful means, developing the faculties we have. The faculties, the spiritual faculties we have. This is all the skillful means that the Buddha taught involve application of the spiritual faculties. And just as within our the physical sense. And the tools we might use for cooking or in the workshop or a set of computer tools. These are, these are things that human beings have invented so as to enhance the physical faculties. You know, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touching are all enhanced and, by using these various tools that we've developed. Well, well, the spiritual faculties of faith, energy, mindfulness, recollectedness, discernment, these spiritual faculties, the Buddha wanted us to become very conscious of them and really hone them down. Sadha, virya, sati, samadhi, panya. These spiritual faculties, now, I think probably it's no news to all of us that the vast majority of people don't even know that these faculties exist. They might have heard of the word, but uh, it's a good fortune for us that the Buddha identified them. These faculties we need to be very conscious of. Yeah. What is our relationship to the faculty of faith? How well developed is faith? What is our relationship to the faculty of energy? We're not talking about physical energy here. We're talking about spiritual energy. Mm. Or mindfulness, the spiritual faculty of sati. How well developed is it? How balanced is it? The spiritual faculty of recollectedness, or samadhi, and the spiritual faculty of discernment, panya. What is our relationship with these faculties? In getting creative, in using the skillful means that the Buddha and all the teachers have given us, or developing our own skillful means, these faculties are primary. Now, if it turns out that when we start thinking about these things, we feel a bit clumsy, you know, like playing a musical instrument. You pick up the musical instrument and you, you make some really nasty sounds. You think, oh, well, this, is, this is hopeless. I'm really, I'm really no good at this. I'm not going to be able to do this. But we can learn. That's the thing. We can, we can learn to make music. We can learn to make beautiful music. We can learn to play other people's beautiful music. We can learn to play our own beautiful music. And so it is with these spiritual faculties. Even if we feel a little clumsy in the territory, let's be careful not just to project all our spiritual ability out onto spiritual experts. That's a, that's a great mistake. The Buddha didn't, didn't want his disciples to be intimidated by spiritual experts. The Buddha was keen to make sure everybody felt encouraged. 
even if we feel a little discouraged in the beginning, that's normal. We don't know how to do something. Yeah. We find ways of encouraging each other in the spiritual groups that we belong to, our meditation groups, or coming here, finding ways of encouraging ourselves, listening to the Dhamma talks available on the internet on a regular basis, finding ways of encouraging each other, finding ways of encouraging ourselves, not letting ourselves get pulled down by feelings of, I can't do it. These spiritual faculties are there as potentials. And the wise thing to do is to adopt a um, can-do approach. Not just putting a spin on it, but just say, well, I don't know that I can't do it. Gazillions of other people have learned to do it before me, so maybe I can. Now, maybe it's not just that our relationship with spiritual faculties is a little undeveloped and they're not very strong. Maybe we actually feel wounded in these areas. That happens. In our spiritual faculties, we can feel, literally, we can feel wounded, just as one might be physically wounded. You listen to too much loud noise, your hearing can be damaged or your sight can be wounded. Hopefully we can heal the wounding. Sometimes we can't, that's true, but I certainly wouldn't assume that with regards to the spiritual faculties, even if we have been wounded in that area. As with emotional wounding, bringing the right kind of attention, then healing is possible. So whatever we find when we turn to contemplating the spiritual faculties of faith, energy, mindfulness, recollectedness, discernment, to meet ourselves where we find ourselves, not to be overly idealistic about how we think we should be or comparing ourselves to other people. This is what I've got. And to really remember, as I said at the beginning of the meditation, conscious appreciation is really important. We've got so much going for us. We've got so much good fortune. We don't want to allow old habits of judging and feeling sorry for ourselves to overshadow the goodness. And then to get creative, like sometimes maybe the faculty of faith has been offended or wounded because in our early life we were sold false goods. And so now all we've got is self-doubt and distrust, compulsively distrusting and doubting everything. It's a symptom of a wounded faculty of faith. Symptom of wounded faculty of energy. Maybe we're just chronically lazy or chronic procrastinators. doesn't mean to say it's a fixed position. Well, how can I get creative in addressing this? There are causes. As Rajan Chah said once when I was complaining to him about my unfortunate condition as I saw it, and I was saying, oh, Lumpur, it shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be this way. And he looked at me with this astounded look on his face. He said, what do you mean it shouldn't be this way? If it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. He's like, he was looking at me. How could you come out with something so stupid to say it shouldn't be this way? You know, there are causes for this, which means we can do something about it. Mm-hmm. Or a wounded faculty of mindfulness. 
If we're so ungrounded because we spend all our early life playing video games or watching television or, or dreaming because maybe you know our external world was unsafe and painful, so we forgot about being grounded. There's something we can do about it. I heard of this experience that happened on a retreat that was being led by a group of lay Vipassana teachers in America. I think it was the, the uh, teachers associated with IMS, Insight Meditation Society, Barry, Massachusetts. And, and uh, as I recall it, each of these teachers that was there on the retreat had half a day to do their thing, to share their teaching style and, and the way of supporting each other. Anyway, when it came to the time for uh, Ruth Dennison, uh, some of you may have heard uh, a very wonderful uh, teacher who's passed away not so long ago, but when it came for her turn to share with the other teachers there, what she got them all doing was to stand up and to practice standing on one leg. And that was the teaching. That was the skillful means. Yeah. Now... If you find that you're somebody who's got, you know, somewhat of a deficit in the mindfulness department, you know, you're seriously ungrounded, you don't have the first foundation of mindfulness of the body well developed, you know, well, we can try that. There's something we can do about it. Try standing on one leg regularly. You know, do it when you're near the wall because you might well fall over. You, know, you can learn to do it on one leg, well, then try to do it on the other leg and maybe you find out one leg's stronger than the other, but... It's a very good exercise, a very good skillful means for helping ground us, bringing mindfulness into the body. A wounded faculty of recollectedness. So many of us, for all sorts of reasons, just learn to dissipate our energy. It's like somebody's turned the lights off. A lot of it's, again, to do with the staring mode that, that we easily get into with reading too much and watching too much television and playing too many video games. The energy is all going out through the eyes and our energy, our heart energy is dissipated. Not very often, probably for most of us, it's not very often that we're taught to sit with our eyes closed and simply receive the reality of this moment, as we can do, through our ears. Or through our skin, you know, feel, feeling the pressure of our clothes on our skin or the pressure of the chair that we're leaning against. Or, as I said, through our ears. When we go into listening mode, we go into receptive mode, which is a really helpful, skillful means to counteract that dissipation of energy that comes from always being in the staring mode. Now, of course, our parents and our teachers didn't mean to teach us to lose all our heart energy and to go so far out of balance by teaching us to read and, and leaving us in front of the television set. Yeah, they didn't mean any harm. But actually, a lot of us were, and a lot of young people these days are genuinely very harmed by spending too much time in that mode. But again, there's something we can do about it. Ajahn Sumato's skillful means of listening to what he calls the sound of silence can be very helpful. And many people can't do mindfulness of breathing because as soon as they try to pay attention to the breath, there's like often the teacher says, now look at the breath and 
what that immediately does is put people in the contracted staring mode. Now, they're not going into a quiet, gentle, embodied receptivity of the sensation of body breathing. They go into this contracted, focused, like a, a rabbit caught in the headlights mode, freaked out. So for a lot of people, when they try to do mindfulness of breathing, it simply doesn't work. But then when they listen to the sound of silence, ah, there's an opening, a receptivity. That works. That works. That's why it's called skillful. Or a wounded faculty of discernment, the fifth of the five spiritual faculties, Maybe because of what happened to us in our early life, for whatever reason, maybe some distorted spiritual indoctrination, or maybe parents who just didn't like us asking questions when we were naturally inquisitive children, we got shamed into not, not getting interested in reality. Children are naturally, beautifully interested in reality. The wonderful natural instincts of the human mind is to inquire. Uh, We intuit that freedom from so much of the danger, including the inner dangers that we suffer from, freedom from that danger is through understanding. And so we want to understand. coarser conceptual intellectual level of understanding, but then also a more embodied intuitive understanding Part of us just longs most naturally to inquire. But not everybody is brought up with having that faculty encouraged and supported. And so it may well be that that faculty of ours has been wounded. But there's something we can do about it. We can listen to those people who are not afraid. We can admire those people who dare to inquire dare to go outside of their comfort zone and ask really difficult questions, not just of their teachers and others, but of themselves. And that inspiration can help dissolve, perhaps, the frozen, contracted state of fear that, for whatever sad reason, we got locked into. So if it's the case that we we find that our relationship to spiritual faculties is not very well developed and was perhaps even wounded, doesn't mean to say that we should assume that it's always going to be that way. There's something we can do about it. Even if others start preaching at us and and come on with idealistic teachings like, you know, just let go or realise emptiness. or Well, they might mean well by saying that, but that's not necessarily wise. It's not necessarily skillful. It's not necessarily compassionate to just tell somebody they should let go. Often, the mind states that we cling to, like a lot of what I was saying before, people do, faced with the intensity and complexity of life, is just trying to make sense of it all, trying to find a way to get some reorientation, some balance, some some centre again. So even the moods and mind states that we cling to, it's not because we're bad that we do these things. It's not because we're stupid. It's just because we haven't found an alternative yet. So 
even if somebody does tell us, we'll just let go. Well, maybe they don't have the particular kind of suffering that we have. And so we need to then exercise patience and compassion with ourselves and meet ourselves where we find ourselves. A great teacher doesn't just idealise and pontificate about how we should be and feed into our naive idealism, but rather they come to a point where they can empathise and they see us, they receive us, and then they give us a helping hand onto making the next step. You find a teacher like that, it's a great gift. And there, and of course, I'm happy to say I lies my gratitude and appreciation for Rajan Chah and Rajan Tate that I lived with in Thailand. And I can remember one particular occasion where I was with Rajan Chah and I was translating for him, well, translating for a visitor who was... Uh, asking Ajahn Chah some questions, a Westerner who had some questions, and I was translating this chap's questions to Ajahn Chah, and Ajahn Chah replied back to him and said, if what you've got is an ox cart, don't pretend that you've got a ten-wheel articulated truck. Uh, I mean, we can do that, you know. We might see the nature of the task and see the burden that we have to carry and might want to take it all on with our grandiose idealistic fantasies and, and basically we can hurt ourselves. You know, we try to take on too much. You know, idealism is a very common disease. When we become disembodied, then the conceptual world becomes overly attractive and we, become, we can become overly idealistic and lose perspective and... So we can think, I should be able to do this. Well, maybe that's true, I should be able to do it. But it doesn't mean to say we can. If any of you have ever broken an arm or broken a leg and it's healing, well, I I want to be able to lift this weight right now. Well, we might want to be able to, but it doesn't mean to say we can. If we're still healing, we're still recovering, then it's skillful to accept our limitations. And as Ajahn Chah was kindly pointing out to this guy, if you're at the level of having an ox cart, accept it. Don't pretend that you've got a ten-wheel truck. That's helpful. So if we do find ourselves in this overly idealistic uh, somewhat split off condition and aiming too high and tending to overreach ourselves, well, then it's time to come back. And if we you know, start to recognize that we take our opinions too seriously, and we, we take our problems too seriously, we take our preferences too seriously, and 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 that means, in other words, that life is always uncomfortable. Wherever we go, life is uncomfortable. And we can't fit in anywhere. Mm. If we find that's the case, well, then I want to just stop and say, well, maybe it's not the place. Maybe it's my relationship to ideals. Maybe I'm just trying too hard. You know, like a meditation, you know, trying to recollect our attention to the meditation object if it's not working 
We don't have to just assume that we need to try harder. Maybe we need to try softer. You know, we think try harder means trying more. Well, that sometimes and often means more rigidity. Well, we say try, yes, but try more gently. So being agile, being willing to let go of our fixed positions and come back to a place where we start to discover for ourselves that this is working. We discover letting go. This actually works. This approach actually works. That old approach, I can let it go. It doesn't matter if it works for somebody else. It wasn't working for me. This works for me. And we learn to not take ourselves so seriously. We learn to be able to fit in. And maybe we find that we move towards, or hopefully we find, we move towards a sense of contentment. Contentment is really the foundation in our practice. Not necessarily being happy, not necessarily having profound, amazing insights, not necessarily having amazing states of concentration where we start to see things in a special, magical way. Uh, I wouldn't recommend aiming for that. Rather aiming for a state of simple contentment. Now don't misunderstand that as being contentment means complacency. We're not talking about that sort of contentment. That's a sort of ego contentment. A more organic contentment where we let go of all of our doing, including all our doing of avoiding, doing of distracting, doing of idealising, letting go of all that and coming back to an energised, alert sense of presence that is simply contented. If we start to discover that, well then we're, we can trust that we have a really good, now we've got a really good foundation. Now so, many, so often many of us are in such a hurry to get ourselves enlightened and we feel like we're going to do the enlightenment we're going to do the liberation. We're in such a hurry to do it. We're so out of balance. We're so caught up in this me and mine that we think it's up to me to get enlightened. That we forget that the foundation is contentment, is ease. It's, with that ease is a receptivity. That's the context. That's the environment of practice. It's not insignificant that the path of practice is talked about sila, samadhi, panya. We might want the panya, we might want the discernment, we might want the understanding, but it's talked about sila, samadhi, panya. Integrity, recollectedness, tranquility, peace, ease, calm, contentment, panya. It's not insignificant that the teaching is talked about in that manner. So hopefully as we start to develop these skillful means that we find work for ourselves, then we become more familiar perhaps with this and we recognise this tendency of I'm going to have to get myself enlightened. That's where faith starts to really serve us. Faith can can be like an ocean that can hold us. We can float in or a current that can carry us along. We can trust in this current of faith that's going to carry us along towards liberation. A couple of weeks ago I was speaking about what's known as the Owada Patimoka, very famous, well-known, one of the most famous 
teachings that the Buddha gave, which starts off by saying, refrain from doing that which is evil, cultivate that which is good. And most of the talk I gave a couple of weeks ago was about those first two lines. That's our duty, that's what we can do, that's what we need to do. We need to refrain from doing that which sullies things, that confuses the mind, that disturbs consciousness. We need to refrain from that and then cultivate the goodness, cultivate tranquility, cultivate ease, cultivate receptivity, patience, kindness, generosity. That's our duty. And then the third line, satchita pariyotapanang, purification of the heart, that's what happens. The first two lines is what we need to do. That's our duty, that's our responsibility. The third line is we trust that we will be carried towards liberation. So it's like finding out what is our responsibility, what is our duty. My duty is to refrain from doing that which is unskillful, cultivate that which is wholesome, including cultivating this quality of faith, this verified faith, tried and tested faith, faith that's not afraid of being questioned over and over again. It's like purifying in the furnace, purifying the gold in the furnace. And every time a, a doubt comes to the surface, we scoop it off like the dross, and recognize it for what it is. And then trust in the power of Dhamma, like leaving it up to the Dhamma, leaving liberation up to the Dhamma. Or sometimes I like to, as a skillful means, I like to think of leaving it up to the Buddha. Let's leave that up to the Buddha. It's like we're going to grow, we're going to plant. Well, we're not going to grow. We're not going to grow a coppice of trees down at Mangala House. We're going to plant a coppice of trees down at Mangala House in a, in a couple of weeks' time. We don't have to do the growing. Nature takes care of the growing. But what our responsibility is to get the seedlings, either we germinate them from seeds or we go to the garden centre or Penny orders them online, we get to the saplings, and then we dig the hole, we get the compost, we get some water, we get a stake, we get a guard, we get a tie, and that's our job done. And then we trust that nature will take care of it. Or like with food, we don't, we don't do the nourishment. The point of eating food is to get nourished. But we don't have to do the nourishment. What we do need to do is to get the food, whether it's plant the food or go shopping for the food. We need to get the food, then we need to cook the food, prepare the food, then we need to eat it. And at every stage we've got to be careful, you know, make sure you're getting food that's clean and healthy and it's not stolen and it's not involved in killing and and it's not pumped full of toxic chemicals, so we pay attention at that level, and then it's prepared in a healthy kitchen, and then we've got to eat it, and you don't just scoff it down so you can get back on the computer, you've got to learn how to chew food <laughs> properly, you get greedy and caught up, all of these things we can get wrong, so that's our responsibility. But once we've done that, and cleaned our teeth, <laughs> then what do we do? We forget about it. We trust that the nourishment is going to happen. Well, I like to think similarly that with our practice, 
that honing down these spiritual faculties, looking at our relationship with faith, with energy, with mindfulness, with recollectiveness, with discernment, looking at our relationship with these faculties and then developing the skillful means that we've learned so as to meet the complexity of life and learn about letting go, that it's possible. We can learn. Understanding comes of its own accord when we do what's our responsibility to do. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Namaya namagata sadhukaranda dhamma seya